Melanoma is a rare but incredibly lethal form of cancer. Melanoma accounts for only 2% of skin cancers, but it accounts for 80% of skin cancer deaths. How does melanoma develop? Why is UV light so dangerous? What role does genetics play? In this episode, we explore these questions and highlight some of the latest targeted therapies for melanoma treatment. Plus, we look at whether artificial intelligence could help with melanoma diagnosis. It's episode 25 of Sister Doctor Squared, two sisters, two PhDs, relentlessly curious about too many things. Welcome to Sister Doctor Squared. As always, we acknowledge the Turrbal and Jagera people as the traditional owners of the land where we record this podcast. We live and work in Mianjin and we pay our respects to Elders past and present and to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening to this episode. Janine, how are you? How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. We've had a bit of a break from work and the podcast because I had some major surgery back in August So Mm. I am feeling good now, but it's taken some time. I'm doing really well. This was prophylactic cancer prevention surgery. So I'm fine and I wanted to stay fine. And we will have an episode in the future talking about that in much more detail. But before we get into this episode, I want to say a big thank you to Sister Alina for being my amazing rock and essentially stepping in to become me for around a month. I'm talking, Alina took on my mental load, physical logistics with my child. (laughs) She just became me and I could not have survived without her, so thank you. Well, I wasn't expecting that and I was going to make a joke, something along the lines of, yeah, and I'm doing okay too after basically running your life for you and looking up. No, I think that's actually a genuine thing to bring up because you were a carer. You were a carer Mm. and it is full on. Yeah, I was exhausted. Um, you, were. you weren't the only one who cried. <laughs> there were some tears. Yeah. yeah. Fun times. No, we're doing good. And we're doing like good. We might be a little bit extra tired today because we had a big night last we did night. Have a Something big night. Very exciting happened. That's and we're right. going to tell you about that later yes, on. Yes, we are. Yes. But now, Janine, tell us about this episode. Yeah, so as we mentioned in the intro, melanoma is an incredibly lethal form of skin cancer. I know several people who've had melanoma removed. Alina, do you know anyone? I do, yes. Yes. Well, we live in Australia. Australia is the skin cancer capital of the world. It is. Most parts of Australia have very high UV radiation from the sun all year round. That's right. So we thought it would be useful to get stuck into the genetic mechanisms that are contributing to melanoma development, including helping people understand exactly why prolonged UV light exposure is so dangerous and why it is such a high uh, risk area living in Australia. Mm, It is. I actually read a statistic. It was two in three people will be diagnosed with skin cancer, so not melanoma, but skin cancer, by the age of 70. So most people. Is that in Australia? In Australia, yes. That is terrifying. Yeah, it's amazing. It's extraordinary statistic. So we've got lots to talk about. Mm. And of course, it's high rates in Australia, but it's a condition that can occur anywhere. So it's relevant There's to everybody. There's also very high rates in New Zealand, mm. which makes sense. Yeah, it does. You know? They're our neighbours. Hi, New Zealand. Hello. All right, so I am covering a review paper by Castellani and colleagues, and they are based at various research institutions in Rome, Italy. 
The paper was published this year, 2023, in the journal Kansas. I didn't check for the journal abbreviation, but I'm pretty sure it'd be Kansas. <laughs> <laughs> I love that we do this now. I know. I, I'm really upset that we didn't. We haven't been doing it all the way along. For, for some years. Yeah, we apologise. It will be a mainstay from here on in. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so this review paper is very big and comprehensive and I really enjoyed getting my teeth stunk. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, That sounds interesting. I'll just Your start this stunk. again. I think we should keep it. <laughs> no. <laughs> I think stuff, stuff like that from now on we should keep it a bit more. Oh, well, let's see if this makes it. May I continue? <laughs> okay. Now, this is a very comprehensive review paper and I really enjoyed getting my teeth stuck into it. It starts by just discussing how melanocytes are the cells that produce melanin. Melanin is a pigment that migrates into the skin cells and it is responsible for skin coloration. And importantly, the melanin pigment is protective against UV damage. So some people have naturally darker skin and this is because they have naturally higher levels of melanin. Yes, and so... Correct me if I'm wrong, that is why people with darker skin rarely get sunburned? That's right. Because, because that, have... that UV light is being dealt with by their higher levels of the melanin pigment. Yes, they have a higher baseline level of melanin. Exactly, yes. Okay, yep. However, being exposed to the sun can mean that we increase our melanin production spontaneously. Mm-hmm. So this is where we can get a skin tan because we've been in the sun. And that process isn't immediate. We don't get the skin tan immediately when we're in the sun. It might take a little while. But the more time you spend in the sun and different parts of your body that are exposed to the sun, you will start to develop a bit of a tan. Most people will, because the the body will increase production of melanin as a protective mechanism. Yes, but people with pale skin might find it very hard to tan. They just kind of burn. That's right. Mm. Such as my partner. Yes, And a lot of people in Australia who come from backgrounds with very fair skin. Mm. So this is part of why Australia has high rates of skin cancer. Yes. What a combo. That's right. So melanoma is when those melanocytes, the cells that made the melanin, become malignant. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned in the beginning, it's incredibly lethal with 80% of skin cancer deaths due to melanoma. Why does it happen exactly? Well, there are various risk factors at play. The most important one to talk about is the environmental factors. So this is where UV light exposure comes into the picture. Prolonged sun exposure or being exposed to light in tanning salons will significantly increase risk. And this risk is dose dependent. That means the more frequent and the longer in duration the exposure, the higher the risk. But why exactly is the UV light so dangerous? I always wanted to understand this. So what happens is that UV light directly damages our DNA. Now, the molecular structure of DNA is similar to a ladder where you've got long posts on either side and then you've got horizontal rungs running all the way down. So picture that. What the UV light does is cause direct mutations where the ladder rungs are broken in half and they flip up or down and bind to the rungs above or below. So we start to see right. vertical binding rather than horizontal binding within the DNA and that's structure. Bad. That's bad. Well, if I was climbing a ladder, I don't want that to happen. <laughs> you don't want big holes <laughs> in your ladder. Exactly. It's a good analogy. It is. Picture a ladder with heaps of rungs broken, f- fusing in the wrong places. And good luck and you're with that. Trying to climb it. It's not good. <laughs> we don't want that. 
But it's important to also point out that the impact of one of those broken rungs depends on exactly where it occurs. If it's in a region of the DNA Mm. that's not involved in making proteins, so that would be non-coding DNA, maybe it's not a big deal. However, if it's in an important gene, you might not be able to make that protein well anymore. So that could have, who knows what effect that could have. And most importantly, if it is in a region of the DNA that controls cell division, that is very bad news. Now, when I mention cell division, I'm talking about the natural process where one cell divides to become two. For the biologists listening in, this is mitosis. When and how cells divide is tightly controlled by the body. We only want cells dividing for growth, for repair, or to replace old cells. If we have uncontrolled growth of cells, uncontrolled cell division, that is when we get a tumour and cancer. And listeners may like to check out episode 10 on why is cancer so rare in Wales, where we talked a lot about this. I think that was one of our most interesting episodes. If anyone hasn't listened to that one yet, check it out. I love that episode. Pito's Paradox. It was really cool. was. And, I mean, given that I've just had surgery to reduce my risk of cancer, cancer is a topic I'm naturally very interested in. (laughs) Yes. It's a big deal in our family. It is. Okay, so coming back to those risk factors. So I've mentioned the environmental risk factor of UV. Another factor that may increase or decrease risk, which we've sort of alluded to already, is genetic inheritance. So those with darker skin are going to be less at risk because they have more melanin from the outset, protecting the DNA from that UV damage from the start. Whereas those with fair skin and freckles will have much higher risk because they have less of the protective melanin. The UV is getting through to the DNA much more easily. And there are also epigenetic risk factors. These are inherited changes in gene expression. I'm not going into that in this episode, but it is a huge and fascinating area of genetics. Researchers can get the genetic sequence from melanoma cells and see whether it is mutated. So imagine comparing the DNA from the malignant cell to DNA of another healthy cell. And then looking at exactly which genes have the mutation to better understand the exact role those regions might be playing and why those mutations may be leading to this melanoma cancer. Mutations in many specific genes have indeed been shown to be implicated in melanoma development. One of the most common mutations that is found in skin cancer patients is mutation in what is called the BRAF gene, B-R-A-F. And that is the focus of this review paper, consolidating what we know about the BRAF gene and reviewing current targeted treatments. Important to point out also that mutation just means a DNA sequence is different to what is normally seen. So as I mentioned before, some mutations might not lead to any issues and some can actually be positive if they lead to really like super proteins. When we're talking about melanoma developing in humans, we're talking about spontaneous mutations rather than inherited mutations. This is something occurring randomly, often due to UV exposure, as I've outlined. This is different to a mutation you might inherit from your ancestors, and we all have these. Yeah. So the goals of this review paper were to understand how does the BRAF mutation affect cell differentiation and inflammation, and how do therapies targeting BRAF work And why do they sometimes fail? So as I've mentioned, BRAF mutations lead to mutant proteins, which drive higher levels of cell division. When cells are essentially dividing continually, this is not normal. And all cancers involved abnormally increase cell division. In this paper, they mentioned that the impacted cellular pathway when it comes to BRAF can experience a 480-fold increase in the rate of cell division. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. BRAF is not the only gene associated with melanoma, but mutations in this gene are seen in 50% of Caucasians with melanoma, so it is absolutely a significant contributor. Oh, right. Yes, and it's even more common in younger patients. Mm. Mutations in BRAF seem to occur in the early stages of melanoma, and later stages of melanoma would involve much more extensive pathogenesis, including changes to blood vessels to supply the cancer cells with blood. That's called angiogenesis. So we're talking about things happening quite early in the piece. So targeted BRAF therapy could be a really useful way to try and block the crazy cell division early. And for the cell biologists listening, one of the targeted therapies is BRAF kinase protein inhibitors. Although this is a very worthwhile treatment, it is not always effective. The immune system plays a huge role in policing the body and removing abnormal cells. We all know that the immune system is involved in fighting foreign things like bacteria and viruses, but it is also really important for detecting and removing abnormal body cells. The body can often trigger protective processes, and one of these is called apoptosis, which is the programmed cell death of an abnormal cell. In this case, cell death is a good thing. Following the initial mutation of the BRAF gene, these mutant BRAF cells can undergo more changes where they are not easily recognised by the immune system. These can involve changes to the major histocompatibility complex, MHC. Essentially, it means that these cells, which are abnormal, can then start hiding and evade immune detection. So the immune system doesn't even know they're there? Yes. Is this like you're having a house party and there's some randoms show up? and no one knows who they are and what they're doing there? or what's, what's happening? Well, even more sneaky. Yeah, they show up, but no one notices them. And they're in camo gear. And they're, they're sitting all around your furniture. And nobody notices anything. But they leave a trail of destruction. Oh, and they, then they wreck your furniture. <laughs> they ruin everything. And nobody even knows who they were and when they arrived and when they left. Oh. Yeah, it's kind of like that. <laughs> okay. And so listeners might like to go back to our very first episode where we did talk about MHC and coronavirus specifically. In addition to increasing cell division and evading the immune system, BRAF mutant cells also lead to increased activity of cytokines. Again, check out episode one on coronavirus where we talked about the relationship with cytokines. Cytokines will lead to increased levels of general inflammation. There is a second BRAF inhibitor that can be used to prevent this increase in cytokines. So I've mentioned using inhibitors for targeted therapy twice now. What does that mean? It means treating doctors will give these patients these inhibitors. These inhibitors are small molecules or antibodies that block the mutated BRAF proteins. They will bind to those exact proteins in a way that means they are inactivated and they can bind in a way that not only inactivates things, but can trigger the cell to go through that programmed cell death, that apoptosis. Treatment with these inhibitors has led to an initial 63% reduction in death and 74% reduction in tumour progression, which is absolutely fantastic news. However, for most patients, the cells seem to develop some resistance to the drug within around seven months of finishing the treatment. The cells start dividing uncontrollably again. So the cancer cells have acquired resistance to the BRAF inhibitors. I'm not an oncologist, but my understanding is that all of those cancer cells that were not sensitive to those agents during that initial treatment remain, and they go on to proliferate over time. And we know that these cells remain resistant to that same treatment if it is administered in future. 
Right. So the question is, can we find targeted treatments that prevent this resistance from developing? Mm. So find those randos in the camo gear, kick them out of the party for good and leave no one behind. Yes. So can we hit the cancer with two breath inhibitors at once, for example? The paper did outline that there are much better outcomes when combining two inhibitors, but still we see this resistance developing after several months in almost all patients. So what about if we hit this with BRAF inhibitors and also other therapies that target other aspects of cancer development? Could we consider combos of three inhibitors? One example could be two BRAF inhibitors and what's called an immune checkpoint inhibitor. These can inhibit other processes related to cancer progression that are controlled by the immune system. So let's really hit this from all angles early. While this approach may be superior, it is still problematic if the tumours show what's called heterogeneity. This is where the cells within a tumour are not all the same, so they don't all respond in the same way. So this is a huge review paper. It then goes into much more detail on other aspects of how this resistance develops, how we might better be able to detect cancer early through blood work biopsies, and potential targets for future therapies. This is an open access paper, so everyone can go and have a read. I would encourage you to do so if you find this interesting. We certainly haven't cured melanoma, but enormous progress has been made through developments in genetics in immunotherapy. So I think watch this space. Good stuff, Janine. And well done to the researchers involved. Yeah, good stuff. And, you know, again, a review paper is consolidating research from so many different labs and research institutes. So it's a great place to go if you're interested in this field. All right, let's shift to how we can detect melanoma in the first place. And I'm covering a study about using AI, artificial intelligence, to help diagnose melanoma. This is really timely because AI seems to be everywhere these days, Mm -hmm. which I'm sure listeners are aware and you are as well, Mm Janine. When is the last time you came across AI? Oh, absolutely. In my work in the tertiary education sector, GPT is everywhere and leading to a lot of rethinking of assessment at higher education. And that's just one example of AI at the moment. Yeah. So many applications. Just the other day, I was submitting my own paper um, to a journal and I was asked, have you used AI to write this paper? Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, so many applications. This paper was jointly led by Michael Marchetti and Veronica Rottenberg with colleagues at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Centre in New York. And this was also where the study was done. It was published in NPJ Digital Medicine, which is part of the Nature Portfolio of Journals. And the Mm. journal abbreviation for this one is NPJ Digit Med. (laughs) (laughs) Do you like that one? I do. Oh, it's another good one. Okay, so the only way to definitively diagnose melanoma is through a biopsy of the suspicious mark or spot, also called a lesion. So biopsy being when a sample of the lesion is taken and examined under a microscope for irregular cells. But for every melanoma that is diagnosed, dozens more unnecessary biopsies are done, meaning the lesion is found to be normal. We don't want to do a biopsy every time there is a slightly suspicious lesion on someone's skin. So this is why there is an interest in technologies to help dermatologists assess skin lesions without necessarily having to do biopsies a lot of the time. Mm. 
There are some technologies like this already, but as the authors state in the paper, none of these have gained widespread use in clinical settings. And I'm not going to go into those, but they include things like adhesive skin patch testing and specialised imagery. Mm. So this is where AI comes in as another technology or potential technology to help decide who needs a biopsy. In this study, the authors wanted to validate the accuracy of a particular AI algorithm in diagnosing melanoma and also look at the impact of the algorithm on the decisions that dermatologists make when assessing skin lesions. So there were actually two studies within this paper and they were done in parallel. The particular AI algorithm used was called the ADAE algorithm. This is an open source, non-commercial algorithm, Mm. which was the top ranked algorithm in a 2020 challenge hosted by the International Skin Imaging Collaboration. Wow. Not being a computer person, I didn't even know there was such a thing as algorithm challenges. Neither did I, but but it sounds sounds fun. Yeah. (laughs) So the ADAE algorithm creates a score based on a dermoscopy image. So this is the image taken from the handheld instrument that you may have seen your dermatologist looking at your skin through. Mm -hmm. It's called a dermatoscope. Mm. Janine, when's the last time you had a skin check? You had one? Oh, yeah. I had one at the end of last year because my workplace was offering free skin checks. So I thought, oh, yeah, I'll sign right up for that. I think prior to that, maybe two years before, I got an A+. Did you? Yeah, because, well, they they obviously do the skin check, but they also talk about your sun-safe behaviours. And I think that's what my A-plus was. I'm like, you know, this is a a benefit of being a certified nerd is I spend a lot of time inside. And if I am going to venture outside, (laughs) I cover up well. And I avoid the sun in the dangerous periods of the day. I do all the things. And I got an A-plus, so... Well, good for you. I know. And you, you have a good skin type for reducing your risk yes. somewhat as well. That's right. But look, not all nerds are inside all the time. There's, let's not reinforce stereotypes. Oh, no. I do hiking and other things, but I'm just very careful about when I do them and what I'm wearing. Mm. Well, well done. That's better than how my recent skin check went. Oh, um, no. At which the... So what, my dermatologist told me I was dressed completely incorrectly for <laughs> Brisbane. <laughs> because when, what I, what, it's because, I don't know why I did this, but I was going for the skin check, so I thought, oh, I'll just wear, you know, I'll just wear short shorts and a singlet because, you know, I'm getting my skin checked and that will make things easier, which is silly because you when you get a full body skin anyway. check, you get, you, take your, you get down to your underwear That's and right. have the skin check done. So it doesn't matter what you wear to the appointment. So, look, I had a brain explosion, but... I, I wouldn't, I mean, I probably would dress like that. Not all the time, though, and not in the middle of the day if I'm out in the no, sun all the time, yeah. but that's what he said to me. Um, <laughs> and it was very funny because he's quite a very distinguished dermatologist, very formal, and just said I was, yeah, because it was in response to me saying, when should I have my next skin check? And he said, <laughs> well, based on the way you dress, <laughs> maybe in another six months. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Yeah, I see, I was given on. two years. I was given I two years. Yeah, I mm. didn't get any points for the hat, but anyway. Oh, that's funny. Okay, so that's good. Keep up your skin checks, everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the algorithm creates a score based on the dermoscopy image as well as the age and sex of the person and whereabouts on the body the lesion is. In this study, there were 453 patients who had 603 skin lesions. 
These participants were recruited by one of 11 referring dermatologists who were also part of the study and whose primary area of dermatology was skin cancer. So skin cancer was their bag. Mm -hmm. As part of their initial assessment, the dermatologists recorded the participants' skin type, personal and family history of melanoma and other information. The dermatologists were then asked to estimate the probability of melanoma, how confident they were in their estimation, and what they would do next before and after being shown the algorithm score. Mm. All 603 lesions were biopsied and there were 95 melanomas among them. Mm -hmm. Now, there's some really complicated statistics in the results, and I'm not going to go into those. We've got receiver operating characteristic curves and area under the curve. We don't have time, Mm -hmm. but... Important concepts in terms of measuring how accurate a test is include um, the true positive rate, Mm -hmm. true negative rate, Mm -hmm. false positive rate, false negative rate. Yeah, I think people are familiar with these, especially since rapid antigen tests were introduced into our lives. That's true. Good times. And from these rates, you can calculate the test's sensitivity and specificity, or in this case, the algorithm's sensitivity and specificity. Ginny. Do you know about sensitivity and specificity in the context of how well a test performs? Uh, I think I've got a bit of an idea of what it might mean, but not a, not a good definition. Yeah. So sensitivity is the ability to correctly identify whatever you're studying, so a particular mm. disease. Mm. So if a test has, say, 90% sensitivity, it means that of all the people who have that disease, the test will identify 90% of them. Okay, so you're talking about the true positives there. That's right. Gotcha. And then specificity is the ability to correctly identify people without the disease. Oh, right. Okay. And sensitivity and specificity are inversely related. Okay. So the more sensitive the test is, the less specific it will be. Because if your test is really sensitive, sure, it will capture almost everyone with the disease most of the time. Yeah. But that also means you'll have more false positives. Oh, yeah, okay. So it's a balance of cost and benefit, and that depends on what you're studying, what the disease is. Yep. So the ADAE algorithm was configured to capture 95% of melanomas, so 95% sensitivity. Yep. Okay, so what did the authors find? Among the 603 lesions, the ADAE algorithm had a sensitivity of 96.8%, and a specificity oh, of 37.4. Well, it actually performed better than the dermatologists did at their baseline predictions. Ooh. The sensitivity of the algorithm was consistent across different lesion characteristics and patient characteristics, but there was a bit going on with the specificity, so the true negatives. Mm-hmm. So this is when you're correctly saying it's not melanoma. Mm. Their specificity was higher in patients with skin type 3, which is medium to olive skin, than it was in skin type 1, which is pale white. So you and I are probably skin type 3, Janine. Yep. And specificity was lower for bigger lesions, lesions that were on the head and neck area and for when the patient was 65 years or over. Mm -hmm. So these are some of the areas where the algorithm could maybe be refined. So what this means is it was better at correctly saying it was not melanoma for people with medium to olive skin, Mm. younger people, people with lesions on their trunk or arms and legs, and for smaller lesions. Mm -hmm. So what about the dermatologists? 
After being shown the algorithm scores, the dermatologist's ability to assess the lesions improved comparing to before seeing the algorithm scores. Most of the dermatologists were no more confident or no Mm -hmm. less confident in their estimation after seeing the algorithm score compared to before. Mm -hmm. One felt more confident, one felt less, but mostly it didn't change. Okay. After seeing the algorithm scores, the dermatologist's decisions about what they would do next changed in nearly one third of cases. Wow. Though this varied by individual dermatologists. Yeah. So remember this is in theory because all of the lesions were biopsied, but the dermatologists weren't aware of what the results were. Yes. So after seeing the algorithm scores, the dermatologists collectively would choose not to biopsy 175 of the 603 lesions. This is 29%. percent mm-hmm. So that means they would do some other test or no test and would follow up. As they report in the paper, dermatologists' decisions about what they would do next had higher or equivalent net benefit compared to just biopsying all lesions. Mm. So what they mean by this is there was a net positive reduction in unnecessary biopsies after accounting for the harm caused by missed melanomas. Great. So the study suggests this particular AI algorithm can potentially improve expert dermatologists' ability to assess skin lesions suspicious of melanoma. Mm. It is an observational study though, so formal randomised trials are needed to confirm the effectiveness of the algorithm. And the study is also limited by the small number of dermatologists and Mm. relatively small number of skin lesions and melanomas. And also all of the participants, so the people with the lesions Mm -hmm. were white. So the study can't say anything about how the algorithm performs for people with dark skin. Yep. So some really important caveats there, but it does show that there is some potential for AI to assist dermatologists' assessment Mm. of skin lesions for melanoma. It's certainly not to replace them, but it's Mm -hmm. another tool to add to their belt to help in their clinical work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's, it's not a replacement, it's an enhancement. And it's... Because obviously I didn't read this paper, but my gut feeling around AI being used for melanoma detection, I just automatically pictured us downloading apps and taking photos of moles and getting some number back from the app to tell us whether it was suspicious or not. But that's not what this is talking oh, about. It's look, talking I about... I wouldn't be surprised if we see something like that. But at, remember in this study, they're yeah. using the image taken from the dermatoscope. Yes, that's so what I was going to say. this is a much more detailed image than what you can take on yeah. your phone. Which is what you want. You want it to be. That's right. A comprehensive, right. fine level detail photo. That's right. And remember, listeners, you can also be doing your own skin checks. And that's an important thing to do, particularly Mm. if you live in Australia or another country that's got high rates of skin cancer like Janine and I do. Mm. And we were certainly taught this from a very young age. Janine, do you remember the ABCDE acronym? Yes. That we used to help with um, checking your skin. So this is things, different things to look out for that might mean you might want to go and have that mark or spot checked out. So A, for asymmetrical, if the spot is asymmetrical, it could be an indication of something. Uh, B, for border, so if the border is irregular, that could be another indication. C, for colours, so different colours. Melanomas can have um, reds, blacks, browns, even blue and grey colours. Diameter, so obviously if the if the spot is growing over mm. time, that's something to watch out for. And E for evolving, so if it's changing mm. in any way really. So maybe it's it's become raised or it gets scaly mm. or if it develops a lump 
or even gets itchy or bleeds and weeps. Mm -hmm. Definitely something to keep an eye on and go and have checked out. And then, of course, also just new moles, anything new. Just keep Mm -hmm. an eye on that. Mm -hmm. And just a spot you have that just kind of looks different from your other spots. Mm. It just looks like a bit of a rando one. Mm. It's good to have that checked out. So we'll put up some links on the show notes for more information about that. Yeah, I think just being really aware of your skin and trusting your instincts and just doing regular professional skin checks as well. Yep. And wear whatever you like to the appointment. It doesn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) But if you want to get an A+, cover up. That's right. Alrighty, so what have we got, Janine? What are we doing? What's happening? I have a classic inner square again this episode. Another inner square. So do I. Oh, so what? You want to go first? Yeah, I'll go first. Okay, so we mentioned puns in paper titles in our last episode, Fertility Matters. In that episode, we focused on research from our very own Dr. Alina Wojcieszek and how Alina and Rachel Thompson enjoyed inserting puns into research papers. And I have heard from a square who wanted to pass on an epic pun in a title. Oh, I love this. I know. So Dwan, Square Dwan from Brisbane got in touch to let us know about her good friend, Danielle Curry, who had a pun in her PhD thesis title, (gasps) Epic Play. I love it. The thesis was published in 2019. Are you ready for this, Alina? Yeah, let's hear it. Taking the poo out of pool. Participatory systems modelling as a decision support tool for even the messiest public environmental health problems. <laughs> well done. I love it. Yes. Taking the poo I, I out love, of poo. I would love to have the word poo in a thesis. I That's genuinely... Janine, can you explain to us what that actually means? Yes, but I genuinely think it really improves engagement. I want to read this thesis now. Of course. Who doesn't want to I read I want a to take the poo out of the pool. The I want to take I, the poo out of the pool. I want to know I why. I think everyone wants the poo out of the pool. <laughs> <laughs> this PhD thesis is from the University of Queensland and it is open access, so people can go and have a look at this. Just a brief summary of what Danielle was investigating was the specific disease she was looking at was cryptosporidium in southeast Queensland. This is a microscopic parasite that causes diarrheal disease. Danielle looked specifically at how this parasite spreads, particularly in public swimming pools, and what can be done to lessen its spread. I really enjoyed looking through this thesis, especially how it tackled multiple aspects of disease management. Mm, sounds really interesting and so important. That's right. And so this is just now a call out for others out there to send us papers with puns in them. We really, really want to start a little collection of these. Well done, Danielle, and congratulations on your thesis. Indeed. Great work. Okay, so I mentioned at the start that Janine and I had a big night last night, and this is the subject of my inner square because... Janine and I were lucky enough to attend the cast and crew screening of Space Time. Space Time is an incredible sci-fi feature film by Michael O'Halloran. We mentioned this film in our Space Junk episode Mm -hmm. a couple episodes ago. So we've finally seen it. And it's incredible. Obviously, we're not going to go. We can't. We're not going to tell you about it too much because you've got to go and see it. So amazing. And I've just 
been, I don't know about you, Janine, but even mm. last night as we drove home, just, you know, talking about, oh, what about this bed and that bed and, and yeah. oh, what about this? And yeah. especially those really mind-bending aspects because this film deals with time travel, so you've got to, You've got to switch on your brain. <laughs> That's right. And then even this morning, just going, oh, and I really, I really want to see it again. I really want to see That's it again. That's what I hope. Yeah, same. It's so great. Well done to Adrian Diary, of mm-hmm. course. Adrian Diary, we've mentioned before, Adrian Diary does the theme music for this podcast as well as the amazing David Bowie theme music that we mm-hmm. have. And he helps with mastering of our episodes. And he has written the original score for this film mm. and worked with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra to bring this film its incredible sound. And it really does shine. It's it's so good. Mm. The score is amazing. It's amazing. It was, it was so good. I would We're say so it was just like a fully immersive experience because I went in there going, I know the people involved in making this, so you're kind of wanting to watch it thinking at that higher level about how they've done things, right? But then I was so immersed in the story, I kind of forgot that Adrian did all the music in a good way. I was just so immersed in the storyline and the excitement of yeah, it all. Because the movie gripped you. That's yeah, great. It was it blew me away. It really did. It was just so good. It was so good. And so Janine and I get to stand on um, the red carpet last night. We did. At this cast and crew screening. And we had so much fun. We're we did. very privileged to be there. So thank you to Adrian and well done to Michael, Adam, Jai, and everyone who was involved. Um, and one more super inner square thing about it, I just remembered, Janine, do you remember when we were preparing to go to this screening mm. and I, you know, we, we go through, what are you wearing, what are you yeah. wearing? And I sent you a picture of, of the dress and outfit that I was going to wear yeah. and I referred to it as my first draft outfit. <laughs> yes. And so it's like I wasn't trying to be funny, that just came out and I that it really reinforces how much of a nerd I am that I've... <laughs> kind of turn that into some sort of scientific (laughs) manuscript submission or something. You know, it's like feedback and edits by close of business on Monday, please. Um, And I think you responded thusly. Yeah, I think I did. I think I followed that without even realising that I was doing that. It's (laughs) It's just how we talk. (laughs) That's right. Outfit open for public consultation and review. No edits required. I think I said no edits required. That's correct. Oh, I should have been a bit more organised. I could have done a focus group. I could have, I could have done a survey. I could have assessed whether the acceptability of the outfit varied across different demographic groups. I don't know. Anyway, I was happy with my outfit and it was super fun to get dressed up for the night. Mm-mm. Got my nails done, got my hair did. <laughs> So, yeah, we will keep Squares updated with any more exciting developments. Oh, and please follow Space Time Movie on your social media. Yeah. And keep up to date. Get excited. Independent Australian sci-fi movie making. We love it. Yes, it is an Australian film with an international cast and crew. Go and see it when you can, people. So thanks so much, everyone, for joining us for this episode of Sister Doctor Squared. As always, details of what we've talked about will be available on our website. Please follow us on socials. And if you like listening to Sister Doctor Squared, please feel free to buy us a coffee on our Ko-fi page. The link to that is on our social media and our website. Janine? Yes. I wanted to highlight that the last episode around Fertility Matters featuring Alina's research 
is the highest downloads we've had in a month ever. Yay! So that was really exciting. And we've had a, we've been breaking a lot of records this year. So we've got some really great momentum going. So thank you so much to everyone for tuning in and thank you for sharing our podcast. If you enjoy it, please leave us a review. We love having you all on board this nerd train. All right. I think I need a nap. Yeah, it was a big night. I slept in till <laughs> half past nine. <laughs> I was still up at 6am. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just me. All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye.